If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 20 through 35 today. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. We'll have it on the screen there if you don't have your Bible with you, but I always encourage you to have your copy of God's Word with you. Have you ever had anyone that you thought should know who you are kind of not realize that they don't really understand who you are? You ever had someone in your life, maybe a friend or a family member, and you thought, yeah, they they know me. They know who I am. You know, know, they, they, they get me. And then they make a statement or they send an email, and you realize that they don't really know who you are. Uh, they, didn't, they don't get you. They're not on the same page as you. Uh, sometimes that happens with maybe friends in our lives. Sometimes that happens with maybe distant co- uh, contacts. But sometimes it can even happen with a relative, someone, someone who's close to us, someone who's known us for, for some time. And we think, oh, they know us, they get us, and yet they uh, don't. When it comes to Jesus, there were people in his life who you would say, oh, they should know who Jesus is. And we come to a passage of Scripture this morning where we realize that there were people that we would think should know Jesus and get him that didn't get him, that didn't understand who he was or what he had come to do. And so Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, that's kind of what uh, this passage talks about. I'm going to read that for us this morning. Just before I do, I meant to do this before I started the message Adam and Verena Grizzlebach, um, hello. This is the Grizzlebachs. This is their last Sunday with us. I know they are, I feel like I'm saying goodbye every Sunday in June this year. I feel like I'm saying goodbye, but especially with our military folk, this is the time of year that they PCS, a permanent change of station, and they are heading to Germany uh, where Verena is from. So we're going to miss you guys. So Adam and Verena, thank you for being with us the last number of years. And uh, we'll miss you guys. You guys might have a worse winter than us next year. So that's the, you know, I hope not. But, uh, but you're one of the few people going to colder places. Uh, Mark chapter 3. Let me get back to verses 20 to 35. This is what the Word of God says. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. 
Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does, does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Here's a passage when we talk about identity that we feel like there's a couple groups of people here who probably should have got Jesus' identity right. One is his closest family members, his mothers and brothers. And yes, Jesus had brothers. You might come from a church tradition that may have taught that Jesus didn't have brothers, but it seems pretty clear in Scripture here that after Jesus, Mary and Joseph did have uh, more kids. It would have been Jesus... Uh, so they did have more kids, and uh, this word clearly is translated brothers. And so Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, and we would think if anyone got Jesus' identity, it probably should have been those who grew up with him, those who knew him, those who understood that something is different about Jesus. And yet they didn't get it. And the religious leaders, we would say, those who knew the scriptures best, those who knew the holy books, those who knew the most about theology, if anyone was going to get the, the Messiah, the Son of God coming to earth, it probably should have been the religious leaders, those who have studied the prophecies. And yet it doesn't seem like they get it either. This whole first part of the book of Mark is really focused on who is Jesus. And so this passage focuses on two groups, his family and the religious leaders, and who they thought he was. In this message this morning, I want to focus on two things in this passage that I think are the two things that often jump out at us when we read this passage. In fact, when I just read it, they may have been the things that jumped out at you, and I'll touch on those in a second. And then two things that I think we miss, which are the two biggest truths of this passage that I think we jump over. I titled the message this morning, Lord, Liar, or Lunatic?, it comes from a famous uh, book by a man named C.S. Lewis, who was a theo theologian in the 20th century. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And if you've never read it, I definitely recommend it to you, especially if you're here and maybe you don't have a faith in Jesus Christ or you're new to church and you wonder what it's all about. Mere Christianity is a great book to pick up and start with. But he wrote a chapter in that book and uh, the, the summarization of the trilemma he pr uh, presents is Lord, liar, or lunatic. He says this about Jesus. He says, I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. People say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
I don't know where you are, but I know that you have friends, and I know that uh, you know people, or maybe you yourself have often thought, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher, but I don't know that he was anything more than that. What Lewis is arguing in this passage is if you actually read what Jesus said, and if you actually see what Jesus did, that you cannot say he was a great teacher apart from something else. Because Jesus made statements like that he is the Son of God. Jesus made statements uh, that definitely assumed that he was divine and from God. And so if he's going to make those statements and they're not true, well, he can't be a great teacher because he'd either be lying or Lewis says he'd be out of his mind or maybe he's evil. And so these are the, these are the kind of the trilemma and the, the, the dilemma that's, that's out there. Which is it? So in this passage we come to this morning, we come to two of those options. His family, first of all, comes and they say he's a lunatic. I mean, they don't use those words. They say the translation for us is he's out of his mind. The Greek uh, is similar. That's basically a literal translation. He's outside of his mind. And why do they say this? Well, Jesus is in a house, and his followers are there, and right what we're told is there were so many people crammed in the house that they couldn't even eat. So I don't know if this is the sole criteria that they are basing their judgment on his sanity or not. Uh, I know that coming myself, coming from an Italian background, that, that may be a criteria that people might use, that if you are in a situation where you cannot even eat, maybe there's something wrong with your mental state. I don't know that that was Jesus's, uh, that was the sole criteria, but maybe it was part of it, because think of it. I mean, think, it's a small community that they're at in Galilee. Jesus gathers these followers around him. I mean, you're taking people away from their work. You're taking people away from the things in their day. Maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe some of the disciples' moms got talking. You know, I mean, these are young men. Maybe Bartholomew's mom starts talking to Thomas's mom. You know, and they, they start saying, can you believe this guy? That he's not even letting him eat. What kind of rabbi doesn't let his disciples eat? You know, maybe they got talking. Maybe Mary starts picking up on some of this. And maybe Mary starts hearing it and starts thinking, what's going on with Jesus? You know, what's wrong with him? And so it says that his family thought that he was out of his mind. He was in a place where he was so passionate about God's ministry, so passionate about doing the will of God that his family actually thought he was crazy. Have you ever been so passionate about something that people questioned your sanity? I mean, maybe you got really into a sport or maybe you got really into a hobby and maybe you got really into serving someplace. I mean, maybe you, you serve, and, and your family or people close to you said, ah, that's great, but you're getting a little bit too fanatical about that. Maybe some family members said, oh, yeah, that, that's great, you know, you know, but that's all you're talking about lately. Oh, okay, okay, can we talk about something else? If you're a parent and you have a new child, let me just tell you that people around you are thinking this at times. Right? Like, can we talk about any, especially people that don't have kids, right? They're like, can we talk about anything else? That's great that he's sitting on the potty. That's wonderful. <laughs> sometimes we get so crazy, you know, these things in our life, right? And, and, and sometimes people think, man, it's a little too much on that. I guess the question that's been 
rattling around, rattling around in my head this week as I read this passage is, has anyone ever said that if you are a Christ follower and you are a Christian, has anyone ever said that or thought that about you or about me when it comes to following Jesus? Has anyone ever thought that you are so committed to Jesus, you're so sold out, I mean, you're so into this thing that maybe you're a little off. And that maybe, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe something's a little not right. Maybe you need to just come back to earth a little. Maybe you just need to come back. You know, you are so, I, I understand, you know, you go to church on Sunday, but this Jesus thing's really getting a little out of control. It's all you're talking about. Yeah, I understand. Have you ever, has anyone ever said that about you and about me? It seems like that if we're going to be followers of Jesus and Jesus is going to be Lord, that at some time someone probably should think that about us. At least those outside the church. I mean, because people outside the church, they don't follow Jesus. So at least at some point, it probably should seem strange to them the way we live our life. If you want to use a more biblical word, Peter said, uh, we're a peculiar people. Has anyone thought about you as being peculiar? because of your commitment to Jesus? Has anyone ever thought that, uh, you know, the way you love the unlovable, the way you care for those who no one else cares for, uh, the way you sacrifice financially and give away things that no one else would give to, that those things, anyone thought, you know, that's great, but you're going a little bit overboard, aren't you? I mean, I mean, it's nice to care for people, but not at the sacrifice of your own comfort, not at the sacrifice. Of, I mean, you're going a little bit overboard. It, it seems to me, and I, you know, I've just this week been a little convicted to think, <clears throat> at some point, somebody ought to think I'm a little crazy because I followed Jesus. And that's what Jesus' family thought. They thought, well, you know, Jesus... Uh, you know, we've got to take you back. We've got to bring you a little bit back down to reality. So they went to get him. And Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says, you know, that's an option. If you don't want to recognize Jesus as Lord, I, you could write him off as crazy. You could write him off as someone who's not to be taken seriously because he was out of his mind and didn't know what he was doing. Another option Lewis has, and another option given to us in this passage is, what the religious teachers say. They say uh, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So let me give you the picture of what's going on here. So these religious leaders come down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the metropolitan city that's, that's there. Uh, you know, all the life and all the stuff happens in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, it's in the north, the best I could describe the Galilee region in Jesus' time. I won't name a name of a town, but you think of a name of a place that whatever you would consider a little bit behind the times, maybe a little backwater, maybe a little backwoods, whatever town comes to mind when I say those words to you, that's kind of what the people in Jerusalem probably thought about the Galilee region. Eh, you know, they're not quite up with it. So we're going to come down from Jerusalem, and we're going to set them straight. We're going to tell them what's what. And so the religious leaders come down basically to pass judgment on this little Jesus thing that they've heard that's been popping up. And they're going to tell them, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the, they're like the board of health coming down. We're going to tell you what you should consume, what you shouldn't, what's right, what's wrong, and then we're going to go back to Jerusalem and, and leave it alone. 
And so they come and they see Jesus casting out demons, and they can't deny that he's casting out demons. Guy had a demon, guy doesn't have a demon. Uh, Jesus cast him out. All right. But what they do is they say, well, he's doing this by the power of Satan. That's how he's casting out demons. So you should not follow him. You should not pay attention to him because he's doing this by the power of Satan. And so Jesus responds. And he uses a pretty simple logical argument. He says, look, uh, logically, a house divided against itself can't stand. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And if Satan is fighting against himself, if there's a demon in the sky and that's from Satan, and Satan casts him out, he's like, then, then Satan's going to be defeated because he's fighting against himself. Why would he do it? It doesn't make any logical sense. And he said, theologically, it doesn't make sense either. It's like you have a strong man. And, and think of this. If you're going to rob somebody's house, and he's a really strong guy. There's no guns in this day and age. There's no, you just got to be stronger than him. And you're going to rob a strong guy's house. You've got to be stronger than that person. He says, so to rob Satan's house, it's not going to be any human. And the only person that's going to rob Satan's house, the only person that's going to take something that Satan has taken possession of is God. And so what he essentially says is, you know what's going on here. You know that only God's power could do this. And so he comes to this statement that I think we often key upon in this passage. And a lot of people come to this passage, and this is the only statement they key upon. And that is when Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven except the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. And many people come to this passage, and that's the only thing that they read, that but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, if you're new to church and you're new to Christianity, this may never have crossed your mind. This be all new to you. But let me just talk to those who are part of the church because I've, I've had people come to me before, and I think probably all pastors have had people come to them before, sit me down, and in all seriousness, not, not, not kidding around at all, very convicted, and they say to me, I think I have committed the unforgivable sin. And they are troubled, and they are burdened, and they feel convicted, and they say, I, I think that I have committed, that God, I have committed the sin that God cannot forgive. And, and so this is a very real thing that people feel and under the burden of. So it's important. Let me just take a second uh, in, in this passage and say, well, what is this unforgivable sin Jesus is talking about? Well, the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is very particular to this context. It says in verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. These guys came down from Jerusalem with the sole purpose of passing judgment on Jesus, and they should have been able to recognize who he was. In fact, they did know that it had to be from God that he was doing these things, but instead they chose to set their hearts against him for their own reasons, probably to protect their power, their position, and to say this isn't from God, this is from the devil, he has an evil spirit. So what they have done, and what they have said is, look, we are not going to accept this from God, we are not going to accept God's salvation, we are going to set our hearts against this, and this is from the devil. 
This wasn't a failure to recognize who Jesus was. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a passing comment. This was a conscious heart set against the things of God, calling the things of light dark, the things of right wrong, the things of God Satan. And they knew what they were doing, and they were setting their heart against it, and they were protecting their power and their position, and they put themselves in a position where Jesus said, if you continue down this road, there's no forgiveness for you. Because what you are essentially saying is, God, I reject what you are offering to me. And what God is essentially going to say to you is, I am not going to force it upon you. You can have the life that you want set against me. And that's essentially what he's saying is, God will ratify that decision set against God. And so this isn't some passing, maybe I've committed it sin. This is a dead set against Jesus calling him, saying he's not of God, he's of the devil, he's got an evil spirit. And so that's why when someone comes to me and says, in all seriousness, I think I have committed the unforgivable sin, I can, in full confidence, in all seriousness, say to them, I know that you haven't. Because if you are sitting in front of me with any guilt with any idea that maybe Jesus can't forgive you, it means that you believe Jesus is the one who forgives. It means that you are not set against God. It means that you have not set your heart against him. It means that you have not hardened your heart and rejected what God has offered. So if anyone comes to me and says, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin, I, and everyone comes to you and says that, I think you can in full confidence say you haven't. You haven't. But those are the two things that we often key upon in this passage. The unforgivable sin and his family thinking that he's crazy. And if you're here today, those are two options maybe you can look at. If you haven't accepted Jesus as Savior, maybe you'd write him off saying, I think he's crazy. Or maybe you just say, I think he was evil. Before you do that, I'd invite you, if you haven't already, just to read what he said. Pick up one of the Gospels in the Bible and read what he said, read what he did. I think if you do and you're intellectually honest, you'd have to say these probably aren't the words of a crazy man. These probably aren't the words of someone who's out of their mind. And then if you look at what he did, healing the sick, healing the blind, giving hearing back to the deaf, raising the dead, bringing hope to the hopeless, I think you'd have to say this doesn't seem to be the words of a man with evil intent either. So who is he? That's where Lewis says he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. But we sometimes don't want him to be Lord. Maybe like his family because we're afraid we'll be considered fanatical if we follow him as our Lord. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. Or maybe like the religious leaders, we just don't want to give up our power and our position, be able to recognize him as Lord. But there are two things in this passage, and I'll close with these two things that I think are important that we shouldn't miss, and those are the words of Jesus. So we always often come to this passage and we look at the unforgivable sin part, but what we miss is the words that were just before it. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. We're like Adam and Eve. 
We focus on the one tree that we're not supposed to eat of instead of all the trees that God has given us and blessed us with. We come and we focus on the one sin that Jesus says, look, if you put yourself in this position, then then, then you're putting yourself in danger of never being forgiven by God instead of looking at the statement that Jesus says, all other sins will be forgiven them. And what an incredible gift that is. And sometimes maybe we just grow jaded to that fact of what Jesus offers to us. That there is no sin in your life that you have committed, nothing against God or others that God cannot forgive. And perhaps you come in here Sunday after Sunday with a sin in your life that you say, you know what, I know God can forgive some people, and I think he even loves some people, but I don't think he can forgive my sin because these people don't know what I've done, and I don't think anyone in this room has done anything like what I've done, and if God knew about it, and if they knew about it, they would know that there's no way God should, could, or would forgive me. And Jesus says, all the sins and blasphemies will be forgiven them. That there is nothing that you have done in your past that Jesus says, if you come and you ask for forgiveness, can't be forgiven. I think sometimes we come to a room like this and we think, well, there are certain sins that are kind of acceptable sins and we can talk about those and you know, those to be forgiven. I, you know, we, I'm too prideful or I, you know, with some of those sins where we, we would say, well, you know, I got a little angry this week with my kids or some of those other things. We feel comfortable maybe sharing those things. But there may be other things that we carry and we say, God can't forgive you for cheating on your spouse or acting out in violence or anger when you shouldn't have. God can't forgive you for some addiction that has a hold of you that you've tried and tried and tried to get rid of. God can't forgive you for abandoning someone that you should have loved. God can't forgive you for failing to show good to someone that you should have shown good to. God can't forgive you. Whatever it might be, greed, something you've done in your past, And yet Jesus says, the truth is, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. It's an incredible truth. But John says it this way in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. See, when we're sinning, the reason Jesus could say your sins are forgiven is because when we sin, when we do something, it's really against God. And he's the only one that can forgive us. And he wipes the slate clean. And Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He talks about forgiving our sins and what it looks like. Colossians chapter 2, you get that scripture, John? I know I'm skipping around on you. When you were dead in your transitions and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers of the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. All your sins. I like the way that Eugene Peterson in the message puts it. He says, think of it. 
All of our sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped it all. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. That's a fun way to think of your sins. March them naked through the streets. No authority for those spiritual forces. He's using an illustration from um, Roman warfare. When the Romans would defeat another nation in battle, they would come home and have a processional parade. And at the front of the parade, of course, would be the victorious general and you know, his regality and, and everything. And he would be there and be celebrated. And then all the troops would be behind him. And at the very end of the parade would be the defeated generals and leaders of the people that had lived and survived. And they would be carried in chains and humiliation and stripped naked and paraded before the people as the losers. And Paul says... That's what Christ did at the cross with your sin. That's what Christ did at the cross, that all of your sin can be forgiven in him. And all those that have held you in bondage because of your sin are paraded through the streets in humiliation. And so when we come or someone you know may come and say, you know what, I can't be forgiven. If you knew what I did, you'd never even talk. How many of you have heard that line? I've heard that line. If you knew what I did, you wouldn't even be talking to me about Jesus. If you knew what I did, you'd know that God could not forgive me. And Jesus says all. We miss one of the greatest truths in scriptures because we jump to this unforgivable sin thing. And we miss that God is saying all of your other sins. All of them. At the cross. And when we come and we say, yeah, but there's this, God can't forgive this. What we're really saying is, Jesus, whatever you did at the cross, it wasn't enough to cover my sin. You got to do something else. You got to do something else. Going to the cross to die for me, not enough. And Jesus says, all of our sins are forgiven. And so there's this great truth that's in there that we sometimes miss. The second truth that I think we sometimes miss comes right at the very end of this passage. It says, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside and they sent someone to call him in. A crowd was around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So think of the scene. These people have crowded in the house. They've sacrificed their meals. They've gone hungry. All they want to do is be around Jesus. They have crowded in so there's no room so his family can't even get in there. And then his mother and his brothers come and they're not going to go in. They can stand outside. Just tell them we're out here and he'll come out. And so the people in the house, if you're there, you would imagine you don't want Jesus to leave, right? You don't want Jesus to, but this is his mom. So you, you got to kind of deliver the message and you've got to understand that he's probably going to leave because this is his family and this is his mother and his brothers and so if they want him to go, you know, mom's calling, got to go. So they probably, you know, I'm guessing reluctantly passed the message on. His mother and brother outside, his mother and brother, mother and brother, and finally it gets to someone near him. Your mother and brother are outside and all the people crowded around him are thinking, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. We just want to be with Jesus. But at the same time, understanding. It's his mom. It's his brothers. He's going to leave. And we don't like it, but we understand it. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement that we just 
rush past. He looks around at those sitting in the circle, and he says, who are my mothers and brothers? Who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? He says, he looked around, seated in the circle, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What an incredible statement that we just rush past to the next thing. Jesus says, if you will do the will of my Father, you are as close to me as Mary. Or you are as close to me as any other human relationship. That if you will do the will of my Father, that you are a part of my family. And I thought, what an incredible statement that we just rushed past. Have you ever felt like an outsider to our family? Or better yet, have you ever had a family tell you, oh, you're just, you're one of the family. And yet you kind of know you're still not. You kind of know, yeah, they're nice to me, but, but I'm still not really a part of the family. Jesus says, if you do the will of the Father, you're part of my family. And what an incredible welcoming statement that is to say that our identity has changed, that, that we are, have all the rights and privileges of family members, that those people sitting there would say, you mean we're? We are as close to you as those that are outside. We are your family. You're going to stay with us and not go with them. I don't know if you've ever felt like you haven't been accepted someplace. Jesus says, if you do the will of my Father, you're in my family. And what's the will of my Father? Jesus said the most important things you can do are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do those things, we're part of the family. All the rights, privileges of family members. That's why in a lot of cultures, and I know we don't do this in our American Western church as much, but you hear church members call each other brother and sister. In fact, a lot of ethnic churches do this a lot more than we do it. And so sometimes when I'm around uh, some of our, especially Indian brothers or sisters from uh, Indian Christian church, someone, I've, I've made this mistake, and they'll introduce me and say, this is my brother so-and-so. And I proceed in the conversation like it's literally their blood brother. And then they, they, use, they catch on and they explain, no, 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 this is, you know, this is my brother in Christ. And shame on me for not recognizing the connectedness of the body of Christ, that we are to be like brothers and sisters, that we are to be caring for one another, that when you come in and I do the will of the Father and you do the will of the Father, that we're not separate, that we're not these, these individuals. We are family members with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what Jesus says, that if you do the will of the Father, my allegiance is not to someone who just has a, a, some kind of familial relationship to me. My allegiance is to those who will do the will of the Father with me. And then we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And those are the two, I believe, incredible truths of this passage that we should not rush past, that all sins are forgiven in Christ. When we come and confess them, he forgives them. And that two, that when we do the will of the Father, we're welcomed into the family of God. That that is what Jesus is saying here. We sometimes miss those important truths because we're focused on these other things and we're wondering, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And Jesus says, all your sins will be forgiven. 
And if you do the will of the Father, you're part of the family. So as our music team returns and as we close out this service in prayer, let me ask you this. Lord, liar, lunatic. I think the options that C.S. Lewis gives are pretty accurate ones. And who is Jesus for you? And I think he said, I think he said too many important things to call him a lunatic. I think he did too much good to call him a demon or evil. So the question becomes, why, if you haven't already, why won't you call him Lord? And is it because you're afraid of what it'll mean in the eyes of other people like his family? Or is it because that you're afraid of what it'll mean for giving up your power and your position in your life like the religious leaders were? <coughs> they had a good thing going, the religious leaders. And if Jesus was Lord, they were going to have to give up their power and authority. And sometimes I think it's that way in our hearts and our lives. And if Jesus is Lord, I don't get to call the shots anymore. I've got to forgive who he tells me to forgive. I've got to love who he tells me to love. I've got to do what he tells me to do. I've got to act how he tells me to act. And maybe we don't like that. So we don't want to recognize him as Lord. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, that would be my question to you today. Well, who is Jesus then? I ask you to just be intellectually honest with yourself. Who is he? What are the options? Great moral teacher that lied to everyone and said he was the son of God? A crazy man that said some of the most incredible statements and gave some of the most incredible teachings of history? A a, a demon that healed people? Raised the dead? Did so much good? Or is he Lord? And I just don't want to admit it. And I don't want to admit what that's going to mean for me. If you're a Christ follower and you're in here, you know, two questions for you. Has anyone ever thought you were crazy because of the way you follow Jesus? And if not, why? Maybe we've got to start acting in a way that's a little bit more like Jesus so people might look at us and say, I don't know. Anyone ever thought you were crazy for the way you follow Jesus? And two, have you come in here with something that you don't believe God can forgive you for? Because I invite you to lay that down before you leave. Because Jesus said all things. If you will bring them to him, he will forgive them. There's nothing in your life that he can't forgive you of. Father, we come before you today. God, and I recognize that there is something in all of us that often rebels and wants to rebel against you and walk our own way. There is something in all of us that doesn't like calling someone else Lord, putting someone else in control of our life. There's something in all of us that wants to maintain control of our life. But Lord, I ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to answer this question of who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning 
and you're ready to say that, you know, Jesus is, I have to admit, and I, and, and I not just am argued into it, but in your heart to convince that Jesus is Lord. And this morning is a great time to give your life to him, to offer your heart to him, to in your place and in your words say that, Lord, I've been living as if I am Lord of my life, but this morning I want to start living with you as Lord of my life and give my life over to you. And you can do that right where you are, right where you're sitting, in your own words. Just confess your sins and recognize that the life you've lived with your hands on the wheel is not a life recognizing Jesus as Lord and you want to, from this day forward, live with Jesus as the Lord of your life. And he'll come into you and help you to walk that walk for him. He'll forgive you of those sins that you carry around. And if you're here as a Christian, I challenge you, search your heart. If you've been living a safe life, afraid of what other people would think, then maybe you'd talk to the Lord this morning and ask him for that boldness that you need. Or if you've walked in here with a sin that you've never confessed, that you would ask his forgiveness and his power to turn from it today. Father, lead us today. We thank you for the truths of your scripture. Lord, let us leave here today living lives more like Jesus. Lives that are so sold out for the will of our Heavenly Father that maybe some people in the world think we're peculiar. Maybe they think we're a little crazy. But what we know is that we're in your family and that we're doing the will of the Father with you, for you. And Lord, let us live lives completely sold out for you, showing your love to this world in the way you've called us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close out our service singing together and worship.